Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hi, everybody. Cheryl Ackeson here. Welcome to another edition of Full Measure After Hours. Today, a deep look at controversies surrounding one of the most widely prescribed drugs in America that you may not have heard of, gabapentin. On Sunday, December 4th, I'm going to have a really interesting look at a widely prescribed drug called gabapentin. What's so interesting about it? Well, a few things. One of them is the wide number of maladies that doctors are prescribing it for. Nerve disorders, pain, sort of unspecified pain, anxiety, and almost all of its use is for things that the FDA never approved it for. Now, it's perfectly legal for doctors to prescribe drugs like gabapentin for so-called off-label use, something the FDA didn't approve it for, to try it on their patients for things other than what it was tested and supposedly proven to treat. But this drug really stands out for the fact that so little of it is actually used for its originally intended and approved purpose. Gabapentin kind of picked up steam as a popular drug pretty fast. I started hearing about people being on it for all kinds of things, and then I went to the vet and they were trying to give it to my dog too. Also interesting, the debate over whether it's addictive. Sunday on Full Measure, you're going to hear a really heart-wrenching story from a musician who had kicked his crack cocaine addiction years before, was prescribed gabapentin for anxiety, and he got hooked on it just like crack. Eventually, he said he was taking 25 or more of these pills a night and then having withdrawals when he tried to get off of it, even trying to crush it up and snort it. Now, a lot of people do say still that gabapentin is not addictive, It's possible, say some, it could be addictive to some people, but not others. But that dovetails into another issue, its role in the opioid epidemic and opioid deaths. A great number of opioid abusers, it seems, are also abusing gabapentin. And you're going to hear more about that in my interviews today. My first interview is with Michael Abrams. He is a senior health researcher with Public Citizens Health Research Group. This group has submitted a petition to more strictly regulate gabapentin. So gabapentin is a widely used medication in the United States, in the world. Um, To give you some idea of the magnitude that we're talking about, uh, I was just looking at some data. There's something like 200 million encounters, medical encounters every year that involve gabapentin uh, every year, just in the United States, something like 64 million plus 
prescriptions. So we're talking about a lot of medicine. Um, it's used principally when it was originally approved in 1993. Uh, the, the, the singular indication was to treat a, a certain kind of seizure disorder that affects just one hemisphere of the brain, partial onset seizures. Since that time, um, it's been FDA approved, that is uh, demonstrated at least to the FDA that was safe and effective for other indications that include post-herpatic neuralgia, which is a, the rash that you get if you, um, if, if you get um, it's the shingles infection. Um, and it's also uh, approved for some neural other, other uh, neurologic pain syndromes. Um, it's very closely related to another drug called pregabulin, the, the molecular structure of these two drugs are, are distinctly similar in terms of molecular weight and the, and the, the, the uh, molecules that you see in that. Um, as it turns out, pregabulin, the second drug that I mentioned related to gabapentin, was approved in 2005 for similar indications. Um, and it immediately was placed on the Drug Enforcement Administration schedule for concerns about it being abused, uh, diverted, and causing harm to human beings, okay, and being used widely by, by humans. Um, gabapentin, however, going back to 1993, never was scheduled in that way, uh, and is much more widely used in pregabulin um, for similar indications. And the, the petition that we're drafting now is, or that we drafted, is uh, a response to that incongruency and that concern to, to bring gabapentin to under the purview of the Drug Enforcement Administration's um, dominion, if you will, to, to follow that drug and to make sure that it, uh, its use continues to be safe um, for, for the broader American public. Okay, a few questions. Um, medically, what is your gripe, if anything, with gabapentin or the way it's being prescribed? Um, so... If you take a look at the utilization of it in recent years, uh, it has uh, become a situation where it's widely used off-label. And by that, we mean that it's used for indications that are not approved by the FDA, for which the evidence base is poor. Uh, in fact, if you take a look at gabapentin data specifically, um, uh, and you know, look at claims data, for example, or uh, do uh, individual level surveys of, of prescriptions. And then you, you try to match up the use of the drug to whether the drug is approved for that. You find that 98.5%, one recent study indicated, so almost virtually all of gabapentin that's being prescribed are for indications that were not approved by the FDA. Okay, That's a uh, great concern to us because there are both safety and um, efficacy, right, whether or not the medicine works, concerns that um, convey when you prescribe a medication for uh, a use that it wasn't uh, approved for originally. What does that tell you? So... An off-label use means, I think, a doctor can decide on his own that even though it's not approved for this use, it may help a particular patient. He has some experience with it. But when so many doctors are prescribing this drug for so many off-label uses, does that mean perhaps it's been marketed kind of behind closed doors for these other things? Or what, what do you take away from that? So 
you know, there's, there's good and bad reasons why off-label use happens. Sometimes uh, medical practice discovers that there are uh, indications that weren't originally evident when a drug was approved that, that uh, could be uh, efficacious. Uh, other times, um, it's, as you suggest, that there's, you know, uh, a, a promotion, inappropriate promotion or by the industry, right? It's an industry's interest to sell more units of their medication than um, uh, uh, with time uh, as much as possible. Um, the FDA is pretty good at policing that kind of ladder activity, and there have been some changes in uh, over time to to um, to encourage the FDA and industry to not, you know, uh, promote drugs uh, surreptitiously in the way that you're suggesting. I think what we're talking about here with gabapentin uh, is since a lot of its off-label use are for indications that are very difficult to treat, substance use disorder, for example, pain syndromes, for example, for which treatments are uh, wanting, often not good, or if we take a look at you know pain syndromes, for example, um, we know over the last 20 years that uh, while opioids control acute pain very well, for chronic pain, bad things happen. In fact, really bad things happen. People take too much of their opioid, they, they're breathing slow, sometimes so much so that they stop breathing and they die, right? Thus the, uh, the opioid overdose epidemic. Um, the desire to try to quell human pain, right, is a fairly straightforward one in medicine. And uh, the idea, uh, even if it's not supported then by good clinical evidence, that you have a medication that acts in the brain, acts on nerves, um, and can ease uh, otherwise unexplained pain from things like fibromyalgia, for example, or post-traumatic neuralgia related to the shingles, as I described earlier, is very compelling. Um, and some of those indications have been tested. The post-traumatic neuralgia, uh, for example, has been. Fibromyalgia is only approved indication for gabapentin. Sorry, for pregabulin, not for gabapentin. So it's, it's somewhat natural that a doctor might say, ah, let's try gabapentin for this pain syndrome, whatever might be the, the original cause of it. And it's become just so uh, widespread um, that you see people using it for a lot of things. I mean, it's, an, it's used for hiccups, uh, uh, a variety of different uh, ailments, um, post-surgical pain control, for which the evidence base is very poor. Um, uh, it's been used for a lot of these sort of related syndromes to the original indication, and, and uh, doctors have found it to be um, an easy uh, thing for them to try to do something to help their patient in front of them. And I think that's why we're at, at the place that we're at. That makes sense. What is the downside of that? What is the downside to an individual patient or society for a potential over-prescribing of a medicine that may not work for some of these things? Yeah, so the simple story is that the downside is uh, are the risks associated with the medication. There are two. The, the risks being the key one. Um, you know, if we, look, if we take a look at data, recent data, again, linking it to the opioid epidemic is completely reasonable here because what we're talking about, the, the principal risk that we're concerned about and that we're targeting with our petition is the risk of overdose and potential respiratory failure and, and, and death, right? Um, with opioids, it's clear that that's 
part of the story. It's clear also, even as things started to get a little bit under control before COVID, now the opioid epidemic is resurging, over 100,000 overdose deaths overall, probably 70, 80% of them tied to opioids. Um, there are other substances cause overdose too, alcohol and, and so forth. Um, but uh, opioids have been a principal uh, driver of this. So how does this relate to, to gabapentin? Okay. It turns out that um, gabapentin is also a respiratory depressant and it's used to treat pain. So it's, it's would be perfectly imaginable for a clinician to say, oh, let's try a little bit of opioid and let's try a little bit of gabapentin. As it turns out, there's very good qualitative research and uh, more detailed scientific research, quantitative research, that indicates that gabapentin sort of potentiates or promotes the, the, uh, the respiratory depression effect of opioids. Combine them together, you're posing an, an added risk on people that they might not even be aware of. If one doctor is prescribing the gabapentin, for example, and another doctor is prescribing the opioid, that's possible. Maybe the doctor that's prescribing both is aware, but the patient isn't as aware as, as they could be. We also see that um, substance abusers are aware of the fact that they can sort of up regulate their response to opioids by using gabapentin. So it's become a way to sort of enhance their high, if you will. Uh, and there's good qualitative uh, and quantitative data to support that concern as well. But so really the key thing is that we're trying to mitigate this risk of, of respiratory depression and death. If you take a look at, re there's been a couple of recent studies that have have cataloged what percentage of these opioid deaths we should be thinking about with regard to gabapentin. Um, and it's something on the order of 5 to 10% from recent um, you know, broad national studies looking at how often you detect gabapentin in, say, a decedent, an overdose decedent that's that you lot. detected. And yeah, that's a lot. And especially if you consider how, how difficult it's been for us to get a handle on the opioid overdose epidemic, right? Why would we want to ignore the possibility that there's this factor that's contributing five to ten percent of uh, of the risk here potentially? And so, in theory, though, um, opioid users, even if they're illicit opioid users, are somehow getting a doctor's prescription for gabapentin, or is this uh, for sale on the black market? As far as you know, so there's uh, evidence, certainly, of widespread prescription use. Um, and uh, I think if you were sort of to take a look at abusers, as, as some of the data that I saw recently, if you take a look at people who abuse the substance, they're taking higher doses than they should be or um, um, uh, uh, somehow are using it for, uh, you know, recreational purposes or for purposes that aren't uh, purely medical, 65% roughly of them got their original prescription from a doctor, Okay. So then the other 35% or so um, is somehow being diverted. And there are, you know, uh, qualitative reports um, from different populations that suggest there's a street value to this $10 a pill or whatever. And there's that kind of diversion or that people might um, crush the pill and snort it as opposed to taking, you know, the tablet orally. So there's certainly evidence of, of um, pure diversion that doesn't uh, a person doesn't obtain it from, from a doctor. But most of it is coming from, you know, widespread prescriptions. As I said, 64 million prescriptions. I think that's 2016 data. So that's probably 80 million uh, 
today easily. It's it's something like the seventh most prescribed medication that that's out there, prescription medication that's out there. So widely available. More from Michael Abrams in just a moment as he explains what scheduling of a drug means in the context of federal regulation. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Sure. So the Drug Enforcement Administration has what they call scheduling, which basically rank orders substances um, on their um, abuse potential and the risk that they pose to, to human health overall based on that. Um, and it goes from one, which is are the most dangerous drugs, and things on Schedule 1 are things like heroin and cocaine, stuff that's illegal. Um, um, and then two through four are uh, potentially legal substances. By the way, Schedule 1 also includes marijuana. That's an interesting thing to think about in today's world. Um, but uh, uh, overall, Schedule 1 drugs are illegal and not available to, to for human use. Schedule 2 through uh, 5 are rank-ordered in terms of their from 2 being the highest risk, things like um, uh, morphine, uh, Oxycontin, um, and, and drugs, you know, serious opioid drugs like that are very common on Schedule 2. Um, and then three, 3 through 5 are less addictive uh, substances, less pernicious substances to human health. Our petition specifically uh, aims to place gabapentin along with pregabalin, the other related drug I mentioned, which is already on Schedule 5, to place gabapentin on Schedule 5. So the lowest... Um, level uh, and the lowest risk that the Drug Enforcement Administration concerns itself with, but still, uh, for something to be placed on that list, it has to have some abuse concern and human health uh, concern potential. What would that do in practice if gabapentin is placed on Schedule 5? Yeah, so it principally would do two things. Um, it would require that anybody who prescribes gabapentin has to be licensed with the Drug Enforcement Administration to handle a controlled substance. Um, so that means any, any doctor who already is prescribing opioids, for example, would be able to easily prescribe gabapentin. No big change there. Doctors who uh, were not prescribing pain medicine, that would be a change for them. Um, then the other thing that it would require is it would require manufacturers, pharmacists, the doctors themselves to record the number of 
pills that they were dispensing and, and clearly label things uh, for, the, uh, for the patient to see on the bottle that they were getting a controlled substance and, you know, would up, up, if you will, the cautions that should anyways convey with a prescription, even if it uh, doesn't involve a controlled substance. But in this case, it would, it would uh, up that intensity. One thing that it wouldn't do, although this was done in the UK in, in 2019 with both pregabalin and gabapentin, is it wouldn't require any limits on the duration of uh, prescriptions or the number of prescriptions that could be issued. And that's something that we think the DEA actually should think about um, when they do place it on the schedule because that would be a good thing, we think, although since we're aiming for level five, it wouldn't be mandatory. But simply, simply stated, the idea that you would every six months at least, for example, need to go back to your doctor and say, hey, I want to refill this, and the doctor should ask you some things about how you're doing with your medicines. Are you taking any other medicines? How's your health status overall? Maybe we should taper you on your medication. Um, that's the idea behind the higher schedules, four to two. There are specific provisions in there that say every certain period of time you need to circle back with your doctor to get your prescription renewed, or your prescription will expire after six months. We're not calling for that here, although we think the DA actually should think about it um, uh, once it hits, hits the schedule nevertheless. So. To be clear, you're not saying gabapentin is a bad drug. Correct. We're not suggesting a ban. In fact, it's a fairly uh, cautious um, action, which mostly is one that requires better record keeping vis-a-vis -vis the drug and a little bit more uh, uh, licensing requirement for the prescriber. But again, like I say, imagine, imagine you have a pain syndrome and you go to a doctor and that doctor doesn't have a license to prescribe narcotics. That would be a little bit unusual, quite frankly. It's still possible. Um, but if they did and they were already thinking opioids might be one of the things I might use for severe pain or acute pain, then they already have the license, which is what this scheduling on Schedule 5 would require. So in some ways, we're, it's a fairly tiny change that we're suggesting, but we think it's an important one, mostly because it gets, it gets the word out, if you will, to clinicians and then to their patients that, we, that this is a substance that should not be taken lightly in terms of its uh, addictive risk potential, in terms of sort of the neurologic sequelae that might go along with, with uh, using it, make you dizzy, make you sleepy. Uh, it, it could even, uh, there could even be rebound effects when you go off it that might involve uh, something as terrible as a seizure, for example. Um, you know, we want to, to up the intensity and, and to use the tools that the DEA has at its disposal um, to encourage better prescribing of this medication, which has just, we've seen just increase greatly, as I said, you know, and for uses that are not evidence-based. Um, can you, I, I'm not sure you did, describe the spike from the time it came out, I think you said in like 93 or so. Was it at a fairly normal level and then a big spike at some point in time, or what do you notice in terms yeah, of Yeah, yeah, that's a good question, and I'm not sure I can, I can remember that per se. I do know that, so it came out in 93, you know, and, and folks have asked me, you know, like, wh why now, right? So, um, so, I th so I think that kind of gets to your question. Um, the, the vigilance on this medication in 93, when it was, you know, it was originally prescribed for seizure disorder, somewhat rare, um, and then it became 
approved for post-herpatic neuralgia, much more common uh, condition, pain, pain syndrome condition as well, which probably drew attention to it. But um, if you think about also just sort of the trajectory of the opioid overdose epidemic, it was um, more in the early 2000s that we saw this. So we're talking about a 10-year lag where gabapentin was, you know, being used to treat seizures, not so much on the radar. Um, then you pre pregabulin, um, you know, at the time, then we, when we started to see also the opioid uh, uh, surge. So that has something to do with the patterns that we're seeing. You know, part of the issue here and part of what the petition, why the petition we think is important and why DEA scheduling is important is, is a lot of places that do, you know, a forensic tox on postmortem cases, for example, don't put gabapentin on the list of drugs that they screen for. Certainly opioids are on there, right? Uh, cocaine and so forth. But um, so part of it is you have to attend to it. You have to see, look for the signal. Now that people are looking for the signal, and, and, and to answer your question, certainly in the last 10 years, we've seen this, uh, this steady increase. So if you look at you know, early 2000s to 2016, there's lots of publications now and meta, even meta-analyses that show the, the kinds of increases and the concerns that we're talking about. Um, but, you know, now that folks are starting to screen for it, um, you, you're seeing, you know, much more signal, which is where the, the, the data I described to you where we're seeing 5 to 10% of overdose deaths that we see uh, involve gabapentin. It was just some data that I looked at from Florida that somebody sent me from Florida and they, in uh, 19 and 20, saw, no, sorry, in 2020, they saw almost 900 deaths where gabapentin was one of the substances that was found in the blood of the decedents in a one-year period in the state of Florida. So, you know, upscale that to the United States, we're talking thousands of uh, potential decedents that are being exposed to this medication that we know from its pharmacology, from animal studies, from clinical studies, is one of the things that can lead to this respiratory depression effect that kills you that uh, is driving the opioid overdose epidemic. Now an opposing view, we're gonna hear from a neurologist, Dr. Brian Callahan, an associate professor of neurology at the University of Michigan, he was involved in the American Academy of Neurology guidelines that he says showed gabapentin as one of the four effective classes of drugs to treat painful diabetic neuropathy. And they also recommended against opioids, seeing that gabapentin could be something that's a better alternative. Sure. My view on gabapentin is that it's an effective uh, medicine uh, to relieve neuropathic pain. It works a little bit, not a lot, um, and it has very few side effects. Um, so it's one of our four really good options for nerve pain. Um, and there has been some literature uh, starting to come out that maybe it can uh, make things worse when used without opioids, but those are really in the early stages. So my, my view is that, you know, we should not have it as a controlled substance. Is it FDA approved for nerve pain? Um, that's a good question. It is. Uh, I don't know that it is. Uh, Pregabalin is FDA approved for nerve pain, but uh, I think the studies for gabapentin were further back, and I don't know that they have an FDA indication. Could they go back and get that if they wanted to at some point? Probably. Okay. Um, 
What's your view on, you kind of touched on it, but I want to ask a whole separate question. What's your view on the notion that gabapentin should be more controlled? What's the argument? What is your view against that? Yes. Against it, yeah. Well, I think the downsides are, uh, you know, the time it takes the physicians. Um, there's extra hoops um, that we have to go through. So we, anytime we prescribe gabapentin, there's multiple layers of extra codes. And then we also have to go through and check to make sure that they're not abusing uh, medications. So there is a non-trivial amount of work. It's not a ton. But when you, have, when you prescribe it as much as we do, uh, that becomes a big downside. And then number two, I think, is the kind of the false equivalency with um, some of the other controlled substances. It makes you almost think, maybe I shouldn't be prescribing it this, this often, when really it's a great alternative to, um, you know, the other controlled substances like the opioids. Is gabapentin addictive? Gabapentin is not addictive. That we know of. And, and if there are addicts who think it has been addictive for them, is it just sort of a one-off? But how, or anything maybe can be for some people, but it doesn't mean it's an addictive drug. Because we did interview someone who thinks he was an addict. He was given it for anxiety, and he thinks he became an addict again because of it. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, that, that's, you know, kind of anecdote. I don't know that we have good evidence that would suggest that it's addictive. You know, you know, we have ways of studying addiction. Um, you know, do people desire it? Uh, from a clinician's a neurologist perspective, you know, I've never had someone coming in, you know, requiring, asking for it, asking for it earlier, asking for more things that we have all the time with opioids, benzodiazepines, other controlled substances. And that, I think, is also the experience of my colleagues as well. When we're talking about something that may help with nerve pain, can you help people understand why it would be important to patients to not make it so hard to get? Yeah, I mean, I think I don't think it affects the patients as much other than, you know, if you put a barrier for the doctor, they might prescribe it less. If there's that false equivalency, they might prescribe it less. Um, but I don't know that it's that much harder for patients. It's really kind of more on the physician side um, and kind of discouraging it uh, to being prescribed. It, well, and I was thinking, though, if a, if a doctor is less likely to prescribe it and you have a patient in a great deal of pain who's not going to use opioids, maybe you've taken a, sense, a source of comfort away from patients. How, how common is nerve pain today, sort of this unsolvable pain that some people have? Oh, goodness. Ner nerve pain is incredibly common. I study painful diabetic neuropathy. Um, that, that, you know, really affects one out of five people with diabetes. We all know how common diabetes is. Um, but there's so many other types of nerve pain. Nerve pain from um, mononeuropathies like carpal tunnel syndrome or from pinched nerves in the neck or back. Um, so when you add it all up, n n you know, nerve pain is incredibly common. Can you explain that I guess it's pretty hard to find something that treats nerve pain well? So the idea that if gabapentin does help some people, why that's so important. Yeah, and that gets back to, you know, we really only have four really good classes of medicines that work, of which the gabapentins are one of them. Um, and so, yeah, if, it may, if you make it hard for one of them, you know, we only have a few other options um, before some people go to opioids. We recommend against opioids, but um, sometimes that's where people end up if, if they don't uh, respond to these um, Public Citizen is an advocacy group that's recommending not, it says, not drastically tighter controls, just what it describes as a bit more bookkeeping and making sure that doctors who prescribe it have a license they probably already have anyway in most cases. What's your view on that? 
My view is that, uh, unfortunately, you know, prescribing it, it's, it's become harder, uh, since, you know, I, I practice in the state of Michigan, um, where it is one of the, one of the states that has it as a controlled substance and it makes it harder for me to prescribe it. Um, you know, I think if I was less knowledgeable about the subject, I might think that I shouldn't be prescribing it as much, that maybe it is like some of these other medicines like opioids. Um, so I think it has real effects. It's not so dramatic in one case if you only had to do it once, but if you're seeing 15 patients and prescribing it to four of them and then doing it day after day, you know, then it adds up to quite a lot. Um, but can you describe some of the differences in since it is scheduled versus if it weren't in the job that you have to do? Yeah. So uh, when you have a controlled substance and, and you prescribe it, we have to generate a, another note that kind of says that we looked into their uh, prescribing system and making sure that they're not getting it from multiple sources. Um, and then we also have to have a two-layer um, system where we have, you know, two passwords um, on the phone and your normal password. So, you know, it's just a, another layer of work um, th to do that uh, we don't always have time to do. Okay. Anything else you want to add about it on this topic? You know, I would just, you know, emphasize that nerve, nerve pain is super common and gabapentin is one of the super, uh, well, it's effective and we don't have that many things that are effective. Um, and so I think it's important to have it be available to patients. And I don't think there should be an equivalency with opioids, which are so much different with so many more problems. Um, so I would like to see it, you know, continue to be easy to use and have physicians have that confidence that it really is not an addictive substance. For more information on the efforts to restrict gabapentin, at least restrict it more than it is today, you can read the petition by Public Citizen at its website. You can go to citizen.org and search gabapentin, G-A-B-A-P-E-N-T-I-N. For more on all of this, I hope you'll watch my TV show Full Measure on December 4th, when we will also hear from that musician, Leo Ashline, what a struggle he had being prescribed gabapentin and becoming addicted to it pretty much losing the life that he had, that he knew, uh, having to go back into rehab and start all over again. To find out how you can watch Full Measure, you can go to CherylAckison.com and click the Full Measure tab. You will find a list of stations and times. Plus, it will explain how you can watch on our free app called Stir and how you can watch online, live or on demand. I hope you'll also think about visiting the Cheryl Ackeson store. You can go to CherylAckeson.com and click the store tab. I have some really unique, fun, and interesting holiday products, all kinds of sales going on with proceeds benefiting independent journalism like the Ion Awards for original and off-narrative journalism. Do your own research. Make up your own mind. Think for yourself. <laughs>